welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Today's guest is composer David Farrell. David's music has been performed by a number of professional ensembles and at universities all over the United States, and also at a number of festivals, including the Midwest Composers Symposium and our very own Contemporary Music Festival at Sam Houston State. Currently based in Denver, Colorado, David is teaching music composition and theory at Metropolitan State University. David, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. One of the things I'd like to focus on at some point is the topic of living and sustaining a creative life. I found this to be something that each guest sort of has a unique take on and something that I, I want to uh, chat with you about. But before we get into that, I another thing that I like to do here at the, the top of the show is go ba- take us back. So maybe uh, you could walk us through your journey and specifically... Maybe you can remember that moment when you knew you wanted to be a composer. Yeah, um, I think I was, you know, I was a curious kid, and I think I had a lot of different things that I liked to do uh, when I was younger. And music was one of them. I mean, theater and math and science. I I did a lot of things when I was younger. Um, And I had some really, you know, as as most of us who end up in music professionally, I had some really great teachers of music along the way in high school, uh, particularly. I had a really great saxophone teacher, and I started playing jazz in high school uh, as saxophone and clarinet player. And for me, that was... uh, that was the sort of bridge of music into creativity because when you start playing jazz, right, you get to make the decisions. Uh, you don't, you're not sort of stuck with the notes that are on the page. And I'd always just played in sort of symphonic band type settings or, or whatever. And that was uh, a really, really, really interesting experience for me because I, I didn't really know anything about how music was made and how musical decisions were made. And so I started learning about harmony and form and all the things and chords and sort of how notes can go together. And, um, I think, you know, when I when I when I decided to go to college and uh, and was trying to figure out what I was going to actually try to do with my life. um, It's one of those decisions that I I wish I could talk to 17 year old myself again and try to get in that mindset, because it's hard to sort of look back without putting a whole bunch of my present day thoughts on it. But I think a lot of it was was just that challenge of it. Uh, It seemed like the right answers for music were just so mysterious, you know, the right answers of, well, how should we make music and what decisions should we make? Whereas in a lot of, uh, in a lot of the other things I liked, uh, in particular sort of math and science, and, and I know I'm speaking sort of at a lower level about those things. When I did math, right, there was always a right answer at the end of the page and I got to that right answer and I was done. And so it never to me was very engaging, even though I, I did it a lot and I, I suppose I enjoyed it in, in certain ways. Whereas with music, uh, it was it was just a real. I, you know, what was what was the question even right? Uh, what was the question that I was trying to answer, and much less what the answer was. Yeah. And so I think that challenge for me was really attractive as a as a young person and as a person who wanted to sort of learn and grow. And so I sort of jumped in, and I remember uh, I, I didn't make probably the wisest decision. 
decision at that point because I was trying to choose between jazz studies and composition. Those were sort of the two things I wanted to do because I knew I wanted to sort of be creative in music. And I said to myself, I know I just don't have the wherewithal to sit in the practice room that long. So jazz <laughs> studies is out. I can't do that. I, I just, I don't, I don't have the, the, the willpower to, to get that good at my horn. So I'll just do composition because that probably won't be quite as rough on me. <laughs> <laughs> and how did that work out for you? <laughs> yeah, you know, in retrospect, I don't know if that was, that was the wisest way to make the decision but i i do remember that was what i thought at the time so yeah oh well so then from uh from there you go on to study and where where did you do your uh all of your schooling yeah so i studied composition uh for about 10 years straight so i i got my bachelor's degree in music composition and theory at the university of illinois in champaign urbana and then I went to Indiana University, and I did both my master's and my doctorate there. And I did that all through without a break. So that was wow. uh, a long time and a lot, yeah, a lot of music uh, and a, a lot of study and a lot of, uh, a lot of composing throughout that time. One of the things that I want to ask you about, too, is uh, your cre- career trajectory. You know, like if someone who goes straight through all of those uh, degrees is probably someone who's looking to enter into the academic world. It's my, it's my guess. Um, and so I wonder if you sort of had a beeline towards academia or what were your career goals when you started versus when you were getting closer to the end? Because I know it, it often changes, of course, as people develop and grow and they go through uh, various degrees. But I wonder how that trajectory went for you and, and if you're doing now what you saw yourself doing when you when you began your studies. Yeah, I mean, if you go back all the way to like undergraduate, I mean, I think I was probably tragically uninformed about like sure. what life as a professional musician could even be. Sure. And so I imagine I, I, I probably wanted to be like, quote, a composer, like where you just sit and you write music all day and, and that's kind of what you would do. And, and somehow that generates income uh, in, in a way that that's that's great for you. Um, and as you go through, you know, you start to see how that world works. Um, for me, uh, I, I've always been a school kind of person, an academically minded person. And so I didn't mind uh, all the, I mean, I made it through. So that that's a, something that right. I, I got through it. Right. Uh, and and I, I like the academic portions of it. I like the study portions of it. I'm an organized enough person that I, I, I don't mind school and all the, you know, all the things that go into school. And so I think it worked out pretty well for me. I, I feel comfortable teaching. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy being part of a music department. Uh, it's, I think it's a fulfilling way uh, to sort of use a lot of the skills I have and a fulfilling place to make music. And then it allows you to sort of still be a composer. You know, it's still part of what I do uh, as a faculty member is, is that professional and creative activity. So, Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Is I've had, um, I mean, of course, that's my world as well. And uh, I, I've talked to a lot of colleagues in the, in the field, both as, uh, you know, instrumentalists, but also as cr- more creative uh, composer types. And um, there is a balance that you have to strike between you know, finding time to do uh, the creative stuff, your creative work, making pieces or whatever that may be for you, and also finding time um, to make your teaching uh, good and, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You have to find a balance between the two somehow. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and that's a real challenge, right? Uh, I mean, school will eat up as much time as, as you want. Uh, you know, you can always spend another hour, you know, trying to find a better example for, you know, whatever concept you're teaching. You can always spend another hour looking at scores that might be useful for your students. Uh, you know, you can always add more time to it to try to make it better. It's 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 a hungry a hungry activity. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it takes. I mean, for me, it's it's trying to be disciplined with time and trying to block out those times and say, okay, you know, I can't just sort of compose when when the mood strikes me or when I feel like it. I have to sort of make sure I'm setting aside these times. Uh, otherwise, I I might lose out on them and I won't I won't be able to do that composing. Yeah. And so for me, it's just trying to sort of regiment my time. Which, which is a tough thing. Uh, you know, you like to sort of feel like as, as a composer, you can be kind of spur the moment and have these bits where, you know, you go eight hours and you just crank out all this music. Uh, but sometimes it's it's got to be a little bit more boring than that and say, well, okay, it's Thursday at two. This is my, my two hours. And it's Friday at 4.30. This is my two hours. And, you know, try to set those times out so that you can be efficient and work in them. And and for me, that's that's something I tell my students, you know, when they have the same issue, right? Uh, as as young course, people is is that time management right yeah right you've got to make sure you you work in that time and you set aside that time otherwise uh, otherwise it's just not going to go for you so what's your process i mean do you are you setting aside a little time every day or do you have sort of big chunks of a certain day of the week or how are you sort of you mentioned this idea of time management are you chipping away at your work or do you, you know, yeah. kind of what's your, what's your process? How do you, yeah. how do, you do that? I'm, I'm slow now. I'm a slow, I think I'm a slow composer now. I've gotten just, I think over time I've gotten slower and slower and slower. I like to think it's because I'm more discerning. That's what I say. I'm more discerning about the ideas. <laughs> and so now, uh, you know, when, when you're a young composer, every idea is a great idea. And now uh, after you have more experience, you know, you start to see the holes and everything. And so um, for me, the process, uh, I, I think, has become almost, almost like a glacial one. And it, it feels like, you know, like you're carving a giant statue where you're just trimming a little bit here and trimming a little bit here and sort of revising over and over and over again. Hmm. And so, I mean, I have time set out like throughout the week. It's, it's mostly smaller units of time, you know, two to like two, three or four hours maybe is, is what I'm trying to do uh, right now for my times. But in terms of the process of actually making the music, you know, it's a lot of just constant constantly molding and constant reshaping and constant rewriting. I think if there's one thing that's like different from the way I, I made music when I was younger and the way I make music now, it's just how many iterations there are in the process where you're always just trying to make these minor improvements. And yeah. it's, it's difficult mentally, right? It's difficult to look at your work and sort of be like, geez, I've been working on this so long and it feels like I haven't gotten anywhere when it's like, well, I adjusted, you know, three dynamic markings and I changed two chords and I added a beat here and here and here in the phrase. And it seems like nothing, but, you know, all the things do add up to sort of make these, these really noticeable musical differences. One of the things that I've noticed about your music um, over the years of being sort of familiar with it, and by the way, I think the first piece I heard of yours was um, this piano composition called Postcards from the Journey West. And one of the things I noted in that piece was how meticulous it was uh, and spare.
and I know you said that was kind of uh, that piece at that time for you was kind of a departure as I remember you describing it like you were doing these big uh, large ensemble like orchestral or wind ensemble pieces and and this was sort of a way to uh, think much smaller uh, writing just for the piano and these miniature movements uh, but but it was just so meticulous and and everything was just in the right place you know uh, I can't I don't know how else to describe it other than it felt very complete to me when I listened to that. It was just like these little pearls had been placed just so and strung together, and it was absolutely beautiful. Um, can you you want to talk about that piece? I mean, I'm kind of launching yeah, into it, but I, I, I yeah, love that piece. Fine. It's one of my favorite pieces of yours. Thank you. Yeah, uh, it, it, was, it was an interesting piece to write. And like you say, it's a set of, uh, I think, 14 miniatures sort of based off this Chinese folk novel. And most of them are about a page long for the piano. Uh, and so, you know, that usually is, is around a minute for, for these things. And um, yeah, you're right. You know, that was that was after I finished uh, graduate school and I wrote this, you know, huge orchestra piece for dissertation. And so, you know, you want you there's there's kind of nothing better than to write small things. Um to sort of just clear out your mind. And I do like, I do like writing short pieces. I like writing small pieces like that. It's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I sort of agree with you in the detail. It was sort of what I was talking about with my process mm -hmm. and yeah. that uh, it, it really is micromanaged and just this idea of kind of listening over and over again and trying to make these, these really minor adjustments yeah. so that things are just so, um, I mean, for me, that's, you know, that's that's the good stuff. That's a lot of the music that I, I tend to listen to and really enjoy has has that attention to detail, these 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 really little things that happen in it. And uh, so so I enjoy that about music. I like sort of, you know, I, I think I, I you spend enough time listening, you can become a close listener to music. And I like to re reward that that close listening, because that's how I like to listen to music, to listen to it really closely. And so with that piece, yeah, it's a lot of these sort of very simple phrases and uh, simple gestures on the keyboard. And I, I was kind of doing a lot of the work at the keyboard myself. So, you know, trying to find the way it sort of lies under my fingers. And I, I'm not an exceptional pianist by any means, but, you know, just trying to sort of get that sense of touch with the instruments, get that sorts of that sense of touch with the chords and, and really try to measure uh, the time appropriately, you know, get a sense of the time and the flow of the piece. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to do. That's a hard thing to do. You know, and that's why sure. I think, like I say, it takes, that's why I think, like, I, as I say, my process has become much slower because, you know, you write a phrase and then it, it inevitably uh, I, I joke with my students that this is my process is I write six bars and then over the next six weeks, it becomes about 60 bars. And just of those six, you just sort of add on and stretch out and add on and stretch out and add on and stretch out. Hmm. And just taking these, I, this, these moment and these small ideas and turning them bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, let's let's talk about that uh, the actual craft of of what you're doing for a second. <clears throat> that um, your your scores not only do they sound meticulous and and beautiful, but on the page it's it's very clear. Everything is laid out in such a way on the page where um, all the instructions are very clear and it's notated very clearly. There's very, I mean, there's ambiguity sometimes, but it's on purpose. Like you've purposefully right. left something open. Um, so, but you use computer notation software, uh, but sometimes you draw shapes on the page or you have unusual um, ways of, of putting things in the computer. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about how that tool 
you know, John Luther Adams uh, told, uh, told I was in a class that he gave once, and he said, you know, tools influence the work. And yeah. he was talking specifically about the use of the computer. And he said, <clears throat> you know, it's, uh, it's not necessarily bad to use, a, it's not good or bad to use a computer or a pencil and paper as long as you understand how that particular tool influences the work that you do. So I wonder if you could speak to the craft of composing a piece of music and putting it down on paper and in yeah. your process for using the computer or or not using the computer and how you arrive at those decisions. Yeah, notation is, is very important to me. And I, I think anybody who composes uh, in, in sort of the making scores world, right, uh, who, who's not sort of just making it all up in their heads or, or, you know, doing something else has to really sort of figure out what their relationship with, with the written score is. And I mean, my teachers were, are, you know, in some ways the source of this, they were, they were very sort of notation oriented. Um, we had a doctoral exam that we had to write a piece we had these timed pieces and they would give you sort of requirements like a 24 hour and a seven day piece. And so I remember I spent a lot of time on this piece and I was thinking about the content, right? I wanted to write this really great piece of music. And when I got the evaluations back, every comment from the faculty was all about the notation. And they're mm -hmm. like, yeah, the ideas are fine, but you didn't lay this out and you didn't lay this out and this, and this is too big and this doesn't lay out nicely. And it's like, geez, if I, I wish you had told me this was a notation exam and then I wouldn't have spent so much time trying to think up good harmonies. Uh, and so, you know, they, I, I think it was instilled in me by my teachers. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of steps to it, I guess. Uh, you know, the first thing is that when you send scores out to people, I mean, the first thing they see is that score and, and you want to make a positive impression on people. You want to, you want people to look at the music and take it seriously. You want it to look like something that you've spent time on and want it to look in a, in a way that presents you well. And so that's important to me. And you know, if I send a score and it looks like a big mess, then I think the people who see that score are going to sort of, whether consciously or not, assume that maybe I didn't really take a lot of care with the sounds in that score if, if it looks so messy. Mm -hmm. And so that's an important thing, I just in, in terms of how people react to the music. Uh, in, in terms of actually using the tools, uh, I mean, I use both. I do a lot, most of my sketching on pen and paper first. You know, I have uh, sort of large tabloid sheets of staff paper from uh, from Carta, Carta number 27, the big oblong 16 staff one. Uh, and I, I've been using that for as long as I can remember now uh, to, to do a lot of the notation. And then, you know, the computer is, is sort of a necessary part of it in terms of reproducing things and making it easy to distribute and making it easy to sort of uh, send things out. But as you say, the, the tool does really make a lot of the impact because Finale and Sibelius are designed to write, uh, they're designed for like conventional notation. Right. And so that's what they're good at, right? That's how they, when they design that software, they're not thinking about like a George Crumb spiral on the page or something like that. How can mm -hmm. I lay this out? They're thinking about, you know, completely uh, standard layouts. And so the software does push you in that direction. The software, you know, subtly encourages you to do these things. And so, you know, when you click add extra measures, well, it assumes that you're laying out your piece in these measures and it assumes that you're not changing the time signature. And, you know, it has the key signatures programmed in, but you have to do a lot of work if you want to use a non-standard key signature. Right. You know, you have to do a lot of work if you want to lay out boxes or lay out your music in any way that reflects, uh, you know, sort of more experimental uh, notational practice. And so 
the computer is really encouraging you not to do that if you use it, right? And and you can it doesn't mean you can't do it. I do it. I, I do it all the time, and I, I figure it out sort of all the, the the backdoor ways to get finale to do silly things, or you know when you get uh, to you want to do something really advanced to take the scores into Adobe Illustrator or some of these other softwares to lay them out. But um, focusing on that communication on how how the idea is communicated and how the idea is laid out, I think is really important. Presenting your ideas in a way that allows them to be realized best. I guess yeah. that's that's what notation is, right? Yeah. And so um, well, if you have an idea that isn't isn't traditional or isn't sort of standard in its layout, then you shouldn't lay it out in that way. Yeah. It's almost, I mean, what you're describing is almost graphic design. You know, when you're talking yeah. about moving things into Adobe Illustrator, you, you'd mentioned that uh, program to me before, and I, um, <laughs> I recently got it on my home computer and was messing around with it and making some, just sort of playing with it a bit to see what it could do. And um, it's a deep, <laughs> that's a yeah. deep, deep hole to, you know, to, yeah. uh, to explore, a deep well to explore there. Um, and so I can imagine that once you, you know, escape the confines of, of a finale or a Sibelius and you bring that into one of these other programs, then, then it sort of opens up all sorts of different uh, possibilities, but also uh, problems and, and th for which you have to come up with solutions. I mean, whether you're working in the software or out of the software, ultimately you're, you are the graphic designer of this score that you're putting down and, and solving the problems. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And so, um, you know, thinking about how that music's going to real be realized and then figuring out the way to sort of guide a performer to that realization. I mean, that's that's a challenging thing. And so luckily we've got, you know, we've got a, a, a whole bunch of great scores that we can look at of, of non-traditional layouts and and people who've already sort of done a lot of these things. And so I just think it's, you know, it's, we, we shouldn't, you know, why not build off of that, right? Why why ignore that? Because now we have finale and it makes it easier to, to not do it. So. Yeah, well, um, for any uh, composers or, or uh you know, burgeoning composers who are listening, uh, what, uh, who are the composers that you think have scores that, uh, that we should study for, in terms of their craft? Like, who has the most uh, informational scores? Who has the most beautiful score? Um, wow, yeah. You know, are, are there people that, <laughs> are there people that spring to mind instantly of, oh, oh you have to study this person's scores because of, Yada yada. Sure. I mean, George Crumb, obviously, in certain terms of the art of making scores, right, is sure. kind of uh, in a class of his own in terms of having a score that's a thing of beauty to look at. Yeah. And that sort of relates to what's going on. I mean, I think uh, Ludoswabski is one uh, in terms of using indeterminate notation and using sort of different layouts. I think a lot of Ludoswabski's scores look really great. I think Venetian Games is a score that uh, the first time I saw you know, I had, I had no, I was like, this is how the music looks, right? I looked at it, I had no idea that the sounds that I was hearing were connected to, to what I saw in that score. Uh -huh. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a really a thing of beauty and a, a real great way to solve a problem, to solve this idea of uh, this problem of, of how to have sort of uh, his, his indeterminate counterpoint. Uh, and so he, he does a really great job in, in laying it out there. And I mean, you know, John Cage is another one who's, who again, has a lot of interesting ways to lay out music, you know, some of which has nothing to do with notes on stabs or anything like that. Right. You know, some of the number pieces, you know, he just, he tells you, here are the things you can do. Here are the ranges in your 
stopwatch in which you can do them right go ahead and make music and there's something wonderfully simple about like saying hey this is a score right these are the directions that you need to make music this is the best way for him to communicate that with you and uh just seeing those alternative solutions i mean you know if, if that doesn't sort of uh if that doesn't really sort of inspire you to think about ways to make scores then go back to finale and just laid out you know straightforward yeah. but if you see these and, and is you know if you see these scores you see wow that's that's a kind of music i could make then that can be a really exciting thing and I, those are some for me that really stand out yeah great well uh to sort of uh turn the conversation around then mm. uh this point to make a pivot point if you will uh, mm -hmm. um you were mentioning earlier before we started recording uh the show that um your recent work, uh, you've kind of gone back to working with some electronics. And I, you said something that was really interesting, and I, I want to just bring it up and let you uh, talk about it more. Uh, you said something to the effect that you've gotten so used to working with this kind of written notation that when you go back to working with the computer and to make purely electronic music, in other words, not written music, but sounded sounding music, uh, mm -hmm. it, it was quite a, quite a, an adjustment period. Can you maybe speak to that that uh, s switching from written notation to making uh, the computer make music itself with electronic music? Yeah, it's it's something that I, like as I said, I'm, I'm kind of working on right now, working on uh, getting back to interactive electronic music, live electronic music, and so music where I'm the performer and I'm interacting with the laptop to to sort of make these sounds. And, uh, you know, as I'm trying to sort of lay out these pieces and think about, well, what's going to happen and how is it going to work and all these things, uh, on one hand, like traditional layout, stabs and notes, it's, it's completely unnecessary because as a performer, like I'm going to be interacting with a bunch of buttons and switches that I set up on the screen and things like that. And so I've got all these controls and I don't need that sort of uh that sort of a score but as a composer as somebody who's been you know writing music for the past 10 plus years and everything I, I i don't think i realized how attached i am to that staff and that paper and those notes because it's really hard for me now uh, to conceptualize music away from that and even you know even in some of the scores that i do that have non-traditional layouts right there's still sort of these staves there's still a lot of notes on the staves and uh, there's you know different boxes and repeated sections and things like that but um, thinking about it in terms of getting away from it completely has been really difficult just for me to sort of lay out my time, to lay out my structure. And so uh, it's it's just interesting to see how reliant, you know, we can get on, on the methods that we use. And so, you know, I, I sort of reluctantly kind of got out some staff paper and was trying to imagine my pieces as though they were going to be acoustic pieces, which which feels completely counterintuitive. But it was kind of the only way I could start to sort of make a shape of them. Like, okay, well, if this was acoustic, I would kind of lay it out this way and this way and this way. And that was kind of the only way I was able to get to those shapes and uh, the forms of the piece, yeah. which I found really surprising. I, I thought it would be not a big deal at all. Well, it, it seems to me I've seen uh, composers who uh, are working with uh, electronics. They sort of, uh, two things can happen. One, the piece is made intuitively or or on a predetermined structure, however they're making the piece. But then when, especially if it's an interactive piece, you have to have something, some kind of notation for the performer who's going to be interacting with these sounds. And so it's sort of a, a backwards approach where they notate the the, the score out after, <laughs> after it's done, right? After the piece right. is made, then they notate some sort of 
way for a composer to, or for the performer to kind of follow along and interact with the thing. Um, or the maybe the other way is that they're working on a purely graphic uh, a purely graphic basis, meaning that they're drawing shapes and pictures rather than putting music down in order to get structure of the piece sort of graphically, mm-hmm. and then from there go, goes into the electronic um, music making. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and right, both both approaches seem seem pretty equally reasonable to me. Uh, I, I think I've just got to sort of figure out the way I want to do it. Uh, right, right. And so it's, but it, it's definitely been uh, it's definitely been testing. You know, you you lose a lot of the limits that you have in acoustic things, and uh, without those limits, uh, you know, that's those limits really make the task of composing a little bit more manageable. So. Uh, so what uh, you mentioned this uh, new working with interactive electronics. Uh, you mentioned also another new piece that you're currently working on. What what's that? Uh, the other piece I was talking about is a piece that I just finished recently, which is a wind ensemble piece. Okay. And so uh, that was that was when I spent a good deal of last calendar year writing most of most of the latter half of last calendar year, and um, I think. For uh, that that was an interesting piece. I was working with the wind ensemble at the university, which I teach, uh, Metropolitan State University of Denver. And the director of the wind ensemble, his goal with the group for the semester was to sort of have a more student-driven ensemble, to have it a little bit less conductor-focused and have the students sort of making more musical decisions uh, so that it would kind of be a little bit more educational, right? A little bit less of, here's me telling you how to perform, and a little bit more, here's me sort of facilitating you working together to try to sort of create music. Uh, And I said, that sounds great because I I love to write sort of indeterminacy in my music. I love to have music where the performers uh, get to make some decisions, uh, where the performance sort of have some liberty to listen to one another and use their skills to sort of create music. I think uh, performers of new music are a really great resource. And that's something I want to tap in my music. And so uh, I I wrote a big piece with them that had a lot of uh, sort of repetitive modules and a lot of listening and deciding by the group. And uh, it was a really interesting piece. Um, I, I, you know, it was a big group of people, uh, even though it was relatively a a small wind ensemble, about 16 or 17 players for for an indeterminate piece uh, where there's a lot of sort of freedom. That's a lot of moving parts that can interact with each other in a lot of different ways. And so laying out something that big was something for me that uh, I hadn't done a lot. I'd done a lot of indeterminate works in sort of smaller chamber settings and trying to anticipate sort of, well, how could these things play out within the parameters I'm laying out uh, made it a really, really, really intense piece to write. Hmm. And uh, and I will say the layout uh, took forever in finale as well. All those parts and all those notes sort of not lining up with one another. It was the longest score I've ever made in my entire life.
it, it sort of begs uh, an interesting point, uh, which is, you know, writing for an ensemble of students. And I mm-hmm. think this is sort of a, I mean, maybe it's sort of an elementary kind of question, but, but maybe important for uh, students who may be listening, composition students, to think about um, knowing the ensemble that you're writing for. Yep. And, and, and writing, a, you know, being practical about what that ensemble can do and what they, what they can't do. I mean, not, not all composers are fortunate to have, you know, world-class, you know, very virtuosic performers who can sort of do everything. Um, most, most groups have some sort of limitation. So working within those limitations, you know, writing a piece, maybe you can speak to this concept. Yeah, that's a tough one for me, right? Because every time I always say, okay, this one's going to be the easier piece. This one I'm going <laughs> to, I know the last one was hard, but this one is going to be the easy one. And, and, and yet, uh, sometimes uh, we don't quite hit that mark. If you know, I mean, if you really know 100% who you're writing for, and in this case, I did, then I mean, ideally, you can be showing them the score along the way, right? Yeah. You sort of Hey, looking at this, can you play this or not? Yeah. And so I had a touch. I had touch base with the conductor of the group as I was working on the piece, and I kind of laid it out. And he was sort of like, "Yeah, I think I think they can manage that." And so I kind of had his uh, his approval on it. Though I will say, it, it pushed the group. It pushed the group a lot. Uh, you know, a lot of them did not have experience making up music on their own, right? They had played in sort of more conventional wind ensemble settings. And so they got their part and they play their part and they watch the conductor. Yeah. And so it was definitely a challenge uh, for that group. I mean, you know, you have to make you have to make the music that you really enjoy making. And and for me, you know, there's always going to be something compl- complicated going on. It's just part of what I like. And so when you have limitations in the performer, you have to just figure out where can you uh, where can you hide that or where can you put that in a place where it becomes practical. I wrote a piece uh, was commissioned by Toledo Youth Symphony Orchestra a couple of years ago. And that one was a hard one for me, right? Because it's a youth symphony. I mean, we're talking like fifth, sixth grade like players. Oh, wow. And yeah. so I'm thinking about this, I'm like, geez, you know, the stuff I write, I mean, the stuff I write, it's, you know, all these feathered beams and all these extended techniques and all these, oh, play this until you're ready to move on. And then, you know, don't worry about how you line up. Just listen to the other player and play in time with how you feel them. And I mean, you can't tell this, you know, to a bunch of sixth graders. It was hard enough to get to a bunch of college students, but to sixth graders. And so it's just figuring it out, figuring out, well, where can I insert sort of the things that I didn't, you know, I didn't want to do. And so, okay, you know, I couldn't do free meters, but I changed meter at least in between the ways I felt like they could manage between, you know, simple meters. And okay, I couldn't do a lot of extended techniques to get the timbres that I, I really like out of an orchestra. But I was like, well, I could have them sort of stomping their feet and clapping their hands and doing some different sort of like body noise making. Uh-huh. And that allows us to sort of have access to some extended timbres that are kind of within their grasp. Yeah. And so for me, it was sort of figuring out how to reconcile the music I want to make because, you know, I, I don't want to make a piece that I don't like just because it's for kids. Right. I, mean, I want to make something that I, I'm still happy with and that we can all sort of share together. Yeah. But you have to find those compromises. And that can be a real challenge. Well, for me, it's always a challenge. Uh, this may be completely naive of, of me, but uh, it, it seems kind of like uh, a group of, of sixth graders probably has a lot less baggage about what, you know, what they should be doing in music that, than a group of college students might have. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe I should have given them this piece and just like, <laughs> out on it, you know, and well, just yeah, make it up and see what happens. Well, the, on, the, right. the only reason I say that is, uh, y- you know, I... 
recently had on the show Danny Clay, who's a <laughs> really terrific composer based out in San Francisco. And I don't know if you had a chance to listen to that show, but one of the things that Danny does exceptionally, that I mean, exceptionally well, but also is really innovative and interesting, is he makes sort of experimental music with elementary school kids. Yeah. And he has them sort of make their own scores, but also perform some of these scores. And they have no... Uh, yeah. you know, preconceived idea. They're just having fun and, pl- and playing, you know? Yeah. And so I, I almost feel like you could probably get away with all kinds of really experimental music sort of crazy ideas with with kids that you, you couldn't present to, yeah. you know, that, that college students would go, well, we're not used to doing this, so. Yeah, I, I, you're probably right. I, the, the conductor who commissioned it probably would be the one who had problems there, more than the kids. There you go. <laughs> that's probably <laughs> where we would have run into difficulties. Yeah, but yeah, that's course. a great point. Yeah, of I, course. I, I do work with uh, a new music ensemble here in Denver, a wonderful new music ensemble, Playground Ensemble. They have a similar program, very young composers. They go out to school and they work with young people sort of composing. They have the musicians from the group play it. And yeah, you know, the kids just like, you know, what's they ask, you know, like what's the craziest sound you can make? Or, you know, they make a sound out of their mouth and then you know the cellist sort of tries to sort of imitate it and there's like yeah point yeah that's the one that's the sound and so yeah that freedom is is pretty wonderful uh pretty wonderful there's a the next thing i'd like to talk about if you're open to it is this idea about quote unquote success you know as a creative mm-hmm. and i've mentioned on this show before this book by sharon loudon called living and sustaining a creative life and it's a collection of 40 essays by working visual artists, all of whom provide a reflection on this idea of living and sustaining a creative life. And those Mm -hmm. stories, as you might imagine, cover a variety of situations and a variety of backgrounds and a variety of successes, uh, levels of success, we might say. But I want to ask you specifically, giving insight and or advice to composers, how does one quote-unquote make it as a composer today? That's a great question. I mean, I think the number one thing uh, that you have to, to do is, is be honest with yourself about what you want as a composer, right? I mean, I think it's really easy for everybody who studies composition to sort of say, it's not about the money, right? I'm not doing this for the money. I just want to like make music. And if that's the case, and if you really, if you really mean that, okay, that's great, right? Then, then do that and be happy to make your music and and do your work somewhere else, your professional work. But if if you really, if you really don't believe that, then you know, I, I don't know that you're going to be happy with what you do as a as a composer. You know, if you get a, a music degree and then you end up doing something else, uh, I know some students probably be, would feel kind of disappointed that they can't sort of make a living or be a professional composer. And so I think the number one thing to start with is to figure out what your goals really are as a composer. You know, is your goal to be a 100% full-time composer? Is your goal to support yourself? You know, is your goal to be regionally well-known or nationally well-known or internationally well-known? And understanding sort of what you want out of being a composer is, is the first step to becoming, you know, a successful composer. And so, you know, if you set your goals on, on sort of fame and stardom, uh, as, as, as you might, I mean, you know, that's a tough path. You don't have control over a lot of those things. Uh, you know, you don't always have control over who plays your pieces and, 
you know, that also might have to end up influencing the music you want to make, right? If, if you want to write, you know, four hour long Morton Feldman style piano sonatas, but you want to also somehow become, you know, a, a very famous and wealthy composer. Well, that style and that outcome are, are going to be difficult to be made compatible. Right. And so you might be put in this sort of unenviable position of saying, well, I, I, want, to, I want to make money as a composer. That's my goal. But maybe that means you have to write a kind of music that is a little bit more, you know, commercially viable or however we want to say this. Uh, whereas if your goal is to just make music that makes you happy, you know, that's a really wonderful goal. But then, you know, if that's your goal, you don't want to get yourself too upset if, you know, you don't win prizes or, you know, you don't become famous or you don't get a lot of money for that music. That music. And so for me, um, understanding what the goal is. Is, is always going to be the most important thing. And that requires a degree of sort of like self-examination and, and honesty with oneself. Uh, and so I, I think that's pretty critical. And, you know, once you understand your goal, you can, you can figure out the way to become successful. And if it means making music that makes you happy, then it's trying to, you know, listen to a lot of music and, and understand what kind of music you enjoy and understand what gives you pleasure from that process and trying to sort of experience that, you know, to the fullest. And if it's something else, if it's sort of a, a de whatever degree of professional success you want, then you've got to sort of look into those fields and say, well, how do I become professionally successful? And then you start going down the web of sort of, well, should I be performing? Who should I be networking with? What competition should I be sending off to? What kind of music might be most likely to be performed at these things? And so setting up those expectations, I think, is the easiest way. I think a lot of composers become unhappy when their expectations, or they're maybe not honest with themselves about their expectations, or when they have an expectation, but they don't sort of follow through with what might be required to reach that expectation. Just to kind of stir the pot or play the devil's advocate, um, this, this does sort of bring up, you know, even some of the, the most famous composers, you know, John Cage comes to mind. Yeah. You know, John Cage is somebody who absolutely had the highest artistic integrity with what he was doing, but he was also very smart about uh, about the sort of business end of things and, and preserving a sort of legacy and a, and a persona. Um, and I, I think he was completely authentic, but at mm -hmm. the same time, there is there is something else going on, uh, sort of not behind the scenes, but there there's more to just. I can't even say it. I, I don't even know how to say it exactly. But do do you know what I'm getting at, sort of? I I mean I think I do understand. Like you say, this you know the cultivation of image, sort of, or you know, or you know, kind of presenting what 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 it's perceived that the public wants. Like I say, it's just so difficult for me to tell, you know, it's like how, you know, does it feel genuine or not? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. such a, that's, that's such a subjective thing to say. Sure, right. And so to say like, well, this person feels like a poser to me, you know, his music is just like all these trendy, these, you know, trendy postmodern fusion styles, et cetera. Uh, but I mean, a lot of people really feel like that's that's their voice or that's the kind of music they want to make i mean i i think a lot of my music is has elements of sort of trendy postmodern fusion styles and, and it feels really authentic to me when i do it so it's just i i i think i i acknowledge that it's a real issue but i i also find it just completely impossible for me personally to sort of tell those things apart i mean if i don't like a piece of music i'm, I'm usually just going to blame the music and not say well like oh well the composer wasn't authentic enough for me yeah so um, 
I, I kind of sort of come back to this book. Um, there's mm-hmm. a there's a quote by uh, a man named Carter Foster, who's the curator at the Whitney Museum of Art, and he mm-hmm. has this really interesting quote. And he he saw sort of take it out of the it's in the introduction to this book. He says, "Some artists are lucky enough that they can make a living doing it, meaning." making their work while other artists work day jobs or supplement their practice by teaching or other means. But I don't think the distinction is important. It's the seriousness of purpose that I admire most. And I found that that was really, um, surprising that, that Mm -hmm. someone of, of that, um, you know, who's curating at such a high level in the art world would say, well, it doesn't really matter that an artist makes a living from their work or not. It's, it's really, the seriousness of purpose that's important. I just mm-hmm. want to get your reaction to that quote. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a really, it's a really beautiful notion as to how we can sort of approach what we do of making, making art. Right. I mean, um, this allows it to sort of really be centered on, on the creator rather than on everybody else's reaction to your work you know, a larger community, but really just focuses it on you, right? On your purpose, on why you're doing what you're doing. And if you feel confident in that purpose, then that's in some ways all that you really need. And I mean, that's, you know, that's the best, that's probably the best approach for for an artist to take if they want to really be happy, right? Because that's something that you have kind of control over. You don't always have control over the reaction or making a living or whatever else is important, but you do have control over sort of how you approach your work and what your attitude towards your work is. And yeah. you know, if if you approach it in that way, then uh, you know, that's 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 going to make you happy, and that's going to make the production of art probably worth doing, probably worth doing. I mean, you know, uh, this, it, it makes me think of, of, of teaching a little bit, right. And that some of the, my favorite students that I have are some of the non-music majors, right. It's the people who don't have any aspirations to become a professional musician or to become a, they're not taking my classes cause they're mandatory. They're taking the class cause they just love music and they want more of it. And it has nothing to do with their job, nothing to do with profession. It's like we say, it's this, it's the seriousness of purpose. Yeah. And so they get in there and they just, they want the knowledge they want to absorb right my favorite story is that i i taught a fundamentals of music theory class and so for people who don't read music right it's you know prerequisite right it's the very very basics of written music and i had a couple of i I always had a number of really great students in those classes and i remember one who was really interested in making electronic music like beats and garage band sorts of things Uh and after the semester he sent me this track and he's like oh he's like this is the first track i ever built using the minor scale because right? like, he didn't know that's a thing yeah. he didn't know that was a thing and he sent it to me and he's just like isn't this sweet I was like yes yeah it was it was you know <laughs> so awesome like here's a thing that you could do that you couldn't do before and like it wasn't because he had to do it, it wasn't an assignment like it wasn't part of the class it was just like I'm doing the thing I love and like now I'm doing it in a better way and in a more serious way. And that was so more, awesome. More informed way, a more educated yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. I have more options now. I could do things I couldn't do before. Yeah. Beautiful. That's a beautiful story. Yeah, um, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there's one, one more question I want to ask you before we get to our sort of closing segment. And mm-hmm. and we've, we've spent a lot of time today talking about 
the craft of composing and putting things on paper and getting your thoughts in order and sort of the the internal aspect of composing. But one of the things that I haven't talked about with anyone yet and any of the composers that have been on the show is the other part of being a composer, which is working with performers and and getting finding your your people, you know, finding the people that yeah. are going to champion your music and um that's maybe even a a a unique thing to composers because you you think a visual artist i mean in the the art world and i'm learning by the way doing this show lots about mm-hmm. i'm learning a lot <laughs> about the the art world and it's fascinating but uh you know they in the art world there's this system of gallerists and so you're an artist and you have a studio and you're sort of doing your work and you know, you're you're trying to find a place to exhibit that work, but but essentially, it, you are doing, you are making the product. Um, mm-hmm. In the case of a composer, you're you're doing all of this internal work and putting a piece on paper, which then you have to put in the hands of someone else to then yeah. make that a reality, to make it uh, audible, and and then it's so ephemeral that it's uh, it's performed and it's in the air and then it's gone. So yeah. let's talk about that side of composing and how how you've handled or or uh, handled the challenge of, of finding performers and documenting your work. Yeah, I mean, there's there's yeah, there's so much there. I mean, it's I, it it is in some you know it is in some ways a, a benefit that you know our work is so collaborative as composers, right? That we get to we get to work with performers, right? Sometimes we say we have to, but sometimes we get to too. And I mean, that's something that you know is, is really wonderful, especially if you know who's going to play your piece. Then you you know that you have this input, this external input that's going to just add something to the piece. And this is something that I, I love to incorporate in my music, which is you know indeterminacy and allowing performers to make decisions because. Because when you work with a great performer, they add that to your piece. You know, that's that's a feature of our our system of me writing down and then giving to somebody else who plays and then getting it performed. But um, of course, the technical side of it, sort of the nuts and bolts of getting people to do it and, and all those things is can be a real challenge. Uh, it's it's something that I I probably I learned late, I think, as a composer. I think as a young composer, I just I didn't really know about how to how to go about that. And I didn't have a lot of, of pieces played when I was younger. And I don't think I had a lot of really good role models. And it wasn't until uh, I, I got to graduate school and I had some colleagues who were very successful and are still very successful composers. And I kind of saw the way they ran their operation, so to speak. And I was like, oh, that's how you do it. And uh, I mean, you know, new music's a community, and I think you have to sort of be a responsible member of that community, right? You can't just expect to be a taker, just to sort of take people's time and, hey, I'm going to write the music and you have to come and you have to sort of serve me and I'm not going to give back. And so that means sort of being a supporter of the other composers you like, you know, sharing their work and going to their concerts and and helping spread the news about them. And sharing the word about performers that you like and saying, hey, this is a great person. Even if they're not doing my piece, they're a great player and I, I really like what they're doing and I want to support them. You know, it's it's about giving back and because that that gets noticed. You know, I think people notice when you want to be a part of the community. You know, I I have I have great colleagues who are really great at that. And I mean, you know, I, 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 I will not name names, but I think I also have colleagues who are very much, you know, you get the email and you know, they're asking for a favor. Right. Yeah. And it's that's tough. And it's sure. sort of like, oh, geez, you know, I mean, this I, I see it and instantly. I know it's about something you want from me. Yeah. And and that's it, it's it, it just doesn't really feel uh, it doesn't really feel great to be working with people like that. Yeah. 
And so go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, you know, that's uh, you, you hit the nail on the head with like the whole idea behind this podcast is, is getting the community together, you know, and, and sort of championing the work of, of all of these interesting uh, people that I've, that I either know or of, or that I'm discovering in the process, you know? So um, I think, I think things like, uh, blogs and podcasts and websites and are, are also ways that we can do that, you know, that we can support the work of other people. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, you know, when you find those people, like you do not let them go, right? When you find a good <laughs> right. collaborator, it's, hey, I, how can I help you out? You know, let's work together. Uh, not just because it's going to be good for me down the road, but because I love what you do, because, you know, I want to I want to see more people enjoy what you do because I enjoy what you do. I want it to stay around. Yeah. So. Well, you know, I've always felt, and, and this is modeled in, in many of my teachers over the years, that it's almost that the relationship uh, between performer and composer or collaborator, whatever the relationship may be in terms of the artistic process, but the actual relationship has always been more important to me than, uh, you know, sort of critical acclaim or or, mm-hmm. uh, or monetary success or anything like that. It's sort of like building the relationship with that person is more important, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, we've collaborated together and I, I just enjoy working with you. It almost doesn't, I mean, I, I'm sure the work will be great because we'll both work really hard to make it good and, 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 and it will be, but that's not really the most important part. The important part is the discussion and the process yeah. and the making of the thing. Right. I mean, that's how definitely. I feel. Definitely, definitely, right? I mean, you'd rather work with people you like, you know, people <laughs> yeah, who you enjoy so. working with than, like you say, the people who maybe could get the guest, best gig for you or, you yeah. know, get you a really big headline or something like that. But I that's mean, not always true. That's yeah. not always true. I mean, I think there I think there are performers and composers alike who are just looking for, uh, you know, who is going to make the biggest headline. I need to hitch my wagon to that star, you know? Yeah. I mean, it seems it seems a riskier play, right? I mean, maybe every now and then you'll get lucky and you'll get connected to the right person. But I mean, you know, if you forge like real relationships, right, then you have those long relationships. And I mean, those can sort of bear out fruit over a long period of time and, yeah. and it can get you better. I mean, I, I really do think it is like it's not just, quote unquote, the right thing to do. Yeah. But uh, I, I think it is sort of professionally more sound, too. Yeah. Well, uh, we're nearing the end of our time here, so we should wrap things up. And I always like to close the show by sort of getting words of encouragement uh, from you to other people out there who are on the creative path. Words of advice for creative people. That's a that's a great one. I think uh, be honest with yourself. Make sure that you know what you want to do with your creativity, and don't be afraid to look anywhere and everywhere for inspiration and for for ideas with what you do. Right, everywhere around us. I think. You know, if if we're making things, it's usually in reaction to to all the the wonderful things in this world. I mean, it sounds sort of corny for me to say it that way, but I think that's that's kind of why I like to make music. It's just a sort of response to, you know, how how amazing so many things are in the world around us. And so, you know, look as many places you can and find as many things as you can. That would probably be my that would be my advice. That's great advice. I I, I still remember uh, just. When you were here, I guess it was, was that last year or even two years ago? Last yeah, year. something like that, yeah. Um, but I had showed you one of these uh, sort of scores that I was tinkering around with. And uh, 
you know, I asked it, well, can I, you know, play this piece for you? And you looked at it and, and the thing that you asked me, and I, I remember this, you said, is it doing what you want it to do? <laughs> and I was like, huh? Yeah, I think so. You know, but it, I never really thought of it in those exact terms. And so now anytime I sit down to, uh, <laughs> to work, I, I always think about what you said is like, is it doing what you think is it doing what you want yeah. to do? And I was like, you know, so that's, that's a, great. Yeah. So that was great advice. So that's what I remember that John. And I remember thinking, geez, I really like gave him nothing when we talked about it. Cause he showed me his piece and I was like, yeah, I don't know. How do you feel about it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, it was terrible criticism. <laughs> no, but, but it, uh, good. It, I'm glad it worked for you. No, it was actually exactly what I needed to hear, which was, you know, is it, is it doing yeah. what you want it to do? That's funny. Yeah. Perfect. Good. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, David, thanks so much for being here today. And uh, yeah, enjoyed having you on the show. Thanks, John. I really enjoyed talking to you. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at thatjohnlane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.